his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ and I use <laughs> Hello, welcome to Farms of Work, a program dedicated to uh, exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the Valley's culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, uh, packagers, brewers, and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Jessica, co-host Sue Timberlake, and show producer Caroline Rutterman join me in the studio. Today we'll be talking with Kathy Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. So thanks thanks for joining us, Kathy. Hi. So you co-own uh, the farm with your husband, Michael Katz. Uh, so what's it like working with and living with your business partner? <laughs> well, it's, um, it's exciting and it's interesting and it keeps us busy. It's probably really good that there's so much work to do on the farm that we're usually working on different things mm-hmm. in the same place. And it's uh, so that's terrific. We feel very uh, satisfied, I think, with the work that we get to do together. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, so in your wildest dreams, uh, Kathy, as a child, did you imagine yourself where you are on a pollinator farm today? And if not, how did you end up here? Boy, I sure there. did not. However, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things was this little undersized loose-leaf binder that I think was from the Better Homes and Gardens magazine mm-hmm. that my mother used to get. And they had pages in the ma- each issue of the magazine you could tear out that were hole-punched. And these were pictures of gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my favorite time was spent looking at these pictures of paths and, and gardens and imagining myself there. So... There is a place on the farm now that looks exactly like one of those pictures. So it's kind of full circle Mm -hmm. for me. Well, I read about the history of the land uh, that That's a Plenty Farm is situated on. And um, I found it to be very, very interesting. Uh, Might you share that with our listeners? Hadley is an interesting place. Apparently, the Hadley Green is one of the only remaining um, village centers that was that is still the way that it was when they were created by the white settlers in 1661. This land has been, we're in the honeypot area of the Great Meadow of Hadley, and the honeypot, I guess, also used to be called the Forlorn Section. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, it's so the Hadley Green, it's got residential farms surrounding the green where they used to keep their livestock, and this is how they protected the livestock from all the wild Indians, Native Americans who were uh, they were afraid of. Uh, and so those meadows are still there. In fact, there's a little historical marker in the Hadley Green that says it's this, this is the edge of the frontier, which I think is kind of an amazing... Um, anyway, so this Hadley Meadows, the Great Meadows, was divided up uh, as an open field farm system. 
And it was divided into allotments that are really strips that are, our, our farm is 72 feet wide by 1,700 feet long, quarter of a mile long. And that's about as much land as one ox could plow in a day. And so that's how they got that. I, I was look, trying to find out what the origin of the honeypot was, and I think it's because of the trailers of manure that the uh, farmers used to bring out to the fields. Um, so I'm pretty sure that makes sense. That's what it is. And I just I found one more thing that I thought was pretty interesting, which was in the late 1800s. Um, farms were declining, the prices of the farms were declining, and it was because of lack of labor, and it was the Polish immigrants who came to this area um, who revitalized the farms and established Hadley as an asparagus center. Mm -hmm. So that was immigrant labor that did that. Uh, And how did uh, That's a Plenty Farm get its start? Well... Um, we were, Michael and I started to become really interested in alternative architecture and alternative ways to live as we were hearing a little bit about climate change in the late 80s and the early 90s. And we explored a lot of different ways to live and discovered that there were a lot of barriers because of zoning, which protects the trades, like the smallest size, there's a minimum size house you're able to build which is way bigger than (laughs) we think a person needs. But anyway, Mm -hmm. so we decided that we needed to learn to grow food to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And we had decided to downsize. We were in Connecticut. We were coming up to Northampton. Our son had been at Amherst College, and we loved the area. And we thought, wow, it's got a river and all these farms and great people. But we couldn't find a house in Northampton where there was enough property that we could afford to grow food on and finally our realtor said okay well how about if we look at some agricultural land and so he took us out to this land and it certainly was sunny and there was three acres of land plenty of land very cheap because it's ag land but he walked us to the end where the Connecticut River abuts the property we thought okay we can we can do this mm-hmm. um, so we purchased the farm in 2007 um, and we immediately decided we needed to learn to get trained. So we went out to California to train with a person named John Jevons, um, whose methodology that he developed with Alan Chadwick, who's a pretty famous grower himself, um, called Grow Biointensive Sustainable Mini Farming. And we went to a three-day training out there with him. Mostly what he was training was people to go to Africa and Russia and South America um, to show people that even on terrible land that you could grow um, thoughtfully, create your own soil, build your soil, Mm -hmm. and create enough calories and fiber crops to support a person in 4,000 square feet um, which would be about the amount of land that if each of us had the same amount of land around the world, there would be enough room for everybody to be self-sufficient mm-hmm. if they grew in this way. So that was pretty interesting to us, and that's how we started our farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you describe uh, That's a Plenty Farm, uh, someone who is just learning about it today? 
That's a plenty farm, and pollinator habitat is a three-acre farm situated between hundreds of acres of traditional farms in the floodplain of the Connecticut River in Hadley. It's on one of the major oxbows, um, so we're surrounded by river on three sides. It's kind of a peninsula. We hand farm. We build soil primarily. That's the primary business of the farm. And we provide uninterrupted habitat for pollinators. Um, So we grow compost and nutrient-dense food for our own family and pollinator perennials to share with the community. Uh, and what are um, what are the original what were your original goals uh, for the farm? Well, we knew we needed to that we could use this land to have a positive impact on the planet, and we were by that time pretty well aware of how awful we were as consumers in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to reverse that, um, and we turned to a lot of experts to help us figure out how to do that, but we, so our goals were to create a biodiverse landscape. We knew that we needed to not do the monocropping thing and try to create as much biodiversity as possible. Um, That we wanted to be able to do abundant food production, even in times of scarcity, and figure out what that was all about. Um, And the Pioneer Valley is full of people who understand that concept, as I'm sure you know. You've probably interviewed most of them. Um, But we were working towards sustainability. Uh, So we put in a lot of perennial foods, uh, fruit trees and nut trees and perennial greens and edible weeds. And a lot of those we didn't even have to put in because they were already there, uh, as well as Mm -hmm. medicinal herbs. And we wanted fertility, self-reliance, which means we didn't, we did at the beginning have to buy a lot of amendments to add to the soil mm-hmm. because it had been farmed for about a thousand years. And Hadley soil is really famous. And when we had our first soil test, we thought, why is Hadley soil so famous? And we discovered that it didn't have anything to do with the nutrients, that it has to do with the way the soil, which is basically river bottom, Mm-hmm. Um, handles water. The particles in the soil are very uniform, and the water just flows nicely through, you know, yards and yards deep. This, it's just flowing through, and it's not. Uh, anyway, it's a it handles water beautifully, and that's a very important thing for agriculture. But um, so it's capture. You're saying it's capturing the water. Well, it's, well, it's more like the water flows through the soil. Or uniformly saturated. Uniformly through the soil. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty much what it is. Oh. So, Interesting. <clears throat> uh, do you have uh, any help to maintain the farm? Uh, Besides no. Michael? <laughs> well, our whole family. Um, our, we have two adult children, and mm-hmm. our daughter had two boys. And when we first bought the farm, all of us were working there. Um, to clear it, it was a an old cornfield that hadn't been uh, tended for several years, mm-hmm. so it hadn't been tilled, which was good. And so we were just kind of starting from scratch and double digging beds and you know learning putting up structures, hoop houses, and so everybody in the family worked on it. It's now 
many years later. We're a lot older. Um, you know, the boys are in college and off around the world doing things. And so we are, um, our daughter does the graphic design. Our son does the, most of the heavy work on the farm. My husband and I are both uh, in our 70s. Mm-hmm. And we scale back a little bit every year. You know, we revisit what are we really going to do? What are our goals? And so it's the three of us mostly working the farm now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how has the, um, or how has the farm evolved uh, over the years? Well, so we started three acres of land, which is a lot of land. Um, and we started doing the grow biointensive sustainable mini farming uh, for the first couple of years. And we got a grant. We discovered the USDA, and we registered our farm with the USDA, and we got a grant to put up a hoop house with their help. We became a a student project for the Conway School of Landscape Design, which was a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, The student came out and did a full survey and gave us a document, a wonderful document with maps and historical information and some ideas for what we might do. Mm -hmm. But we had an acre and a half that we hadn't even touched. We just couldn't get to it. We didn't know what to do. We went back to the USDA and the uh, NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, said, you know what? We've got money this year for pollinator habitat. And there was only one. They had only funded one and that was in the Boston area for a cranberry bog. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're situated in the middle of all this farmland it would be a great place to have a pollinator habitat and maybe it would encourage some of the other farmers to spray less. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we got started with that and they put together a a panel of um, people to advise us from all over the country because nobody was doing this. It was a new thing in 2011 Mm -hmm. for the NRCS. And so we, you know, got their best ideas and we installed the pollinator habitat with the help of um, Tom Sullivan, who's a local bee person, um, landscape designer, and we had local farmers come help us. We did till this acre and a half once. Um, We planted, we did some hand amendments, stone dust mostly, which is what they used to put in roads. Grew some rye. Then we had some uh, some local um, farmer brewers come and harvest the rye. They bought the rye from us, the rye seeds, um, and left us with great stalks that we could use for our compost piles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were doing that. We were also we at that time had started selling lettuce to local restaurants and cherry tomatoes to the local markets. And we did that for four or five years. And then other farms in the area started doing it too, and much bigger farms than we were. And at the same time, the farm bill um, came through in 2018, and it required the food safety requirements, which I'm sure are very important Mm -hmm. for all of us, made it just way too ridiculous for us to be able to meet those requirements in terms of preparing and packaging food. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, we're, that's been great. And so we started to focus on the pollinator 
um, plants because they were now established. We were collecting seeds. We started selling seeds online, and now we sell seeds and plants online. That's kind of this process. Mm-hmm. Also going back, um, actually, first I should mention that you're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we're talking with Kathy uh, Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. So, Kathy, you brought up uh, using the crushed stone, um, which I had the opportunity to talk to a local woman who, what's her, she has a nonprofit um, where they remineralize. Remineralize the earth. Yeah, remineralizing. um, Fantastic. And we actually used that. We got a donation of the rock dust for the community gardens in Northampton, and I know Uh a lot of people could just go and grab some for their plot. And it, I mean, I definitely noticed a difference in my plot. Oh, you at did? Using the rock dust. Yeah, just bigger, more vigorous plants. Um, that was one of the most, that's one of our most used amendments was putting that stone dust down. Mm-hmm. I think it has many functions, I guess. It attracts energy um, into the soil. Yeah, um, provides a lot of... Yeah, yeah it's been great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now in the hoop house, what are, you, what are you growing in the hoop house that you got the funding for? Well, um, for several years, we were growing lettuce for restaurants. We mm-hmm. produced some beautiful lettuces. We used to sell to some of the excellent restaurants in town. And um, and we are not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do grow our own tomatoes. Um, we're still eating our tomato sauce from last summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got us all through the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're going to put most of our vegetables in there this year. Um, because the beds, you know, double digging beds, and that was one of the main things that we did, which is you're, you're actually digging down probably about a foot into the soil and putting amendments down in there, and then you don't dig again. Then you use mm-hmm. a, something called a broad fork, which has got long tines to bring up the soil, put air in the soil, but um, you're mm-hmm. using crops and cover crops also to keep the soil at the right texture Um, and we also use alfalfa meal as our primary amendment uh, which we can buy through nofa they have a bulk order system it's very we haven't found alfalfa meal in the local Mm -hmm. stores Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a nitrogen source but it's a slow delivery Um, so we just put it in with all the plants that we do we also use mycorrhizal fungi um on our seeds you've probably had conversations about this and you know so we try to get that um that life into the soil around the plant roots Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so are you saying you have the double dug beds in the in the hoop house yes we do Mm -hmm. that's awesome um i know they're so great so actually I'm, i'm experimenting with I grew alfalfa in my garden, but just let it grow, and it has a very root, very deep root. Twenty five feet, yeah. Or something so like I'm that. just, I'm just chop. Like I have maybe four plants, so I'm just chopping it down and using it as a mulch. Oh, because I'm amazing. assuming, I'm assuming it can break down and yeah, provide and nutrients. Also, right. So compost piles are pretty important things, and you know, if you have at the very beginning, we were being very meticulous about our percentages of dry versus mm-hmm. green material, and making sure you get soil in there. Not nearly as meticulous now, 
Um, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of composting in place. Like we have mm-hmm. fertility areas right next to where we might be cleaning or harvesting, and and then we leave it. And <laughs> this year, I started digging out beneath the compost piles to get the soil that's in there mm. out, and just leave the stuff in the top to lower itself and mm-hmm. and keep growing. It's really a wonderful feeling to be bringing out beautiful soil from the bottom of a compost pile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't like to have to buy hay or something. I mean, straw every year. And so, yeah, I also have comfrey comfrey plants oh. all around the outside of the garden comfrey. that don't that don't it's the russian variety that doesn't spread and so i can just grab leaves whenever i want and throw them on the on the garden bed yeah and i th- and and comfrey is one of my favorite plants by the way it's a oh. fantastic pollinator plant oh, yeah, they love yeah the pollinators it, love it seems like it blooms all summer long and the yeah. bumblebees over and over, yeah. love it mm-hmm. it's an invasive well, I've, plant. Se- I've seen i like I'm, invasive plants yeah <laughs> I mean, the variety I have, I mean, I went to Sawmill Herb Farm, and I saw the plant everywhere, and I said to, I said to the woman, oh, did you pl- purposely plant the, oh, no, they spread. I said, oh, I got the Russian one that doesn't spread, unless, I mean, you have to take, you know, a piece you and plant do. it. Because I'm not sure what the, the purple comfrey flowers. is that I have, but John Jevons laughed mm-hmm. when he was talking about comfrey, and he said, all you have to do to plant comfrey is take one plant, chop up the roots, throw them around in the air, just mm-hmm. throw it wherever it'll grow and it's true and i have they're growing up through like two foot <laughs> oh, no. tall compost piles and it's oh, wonderful. well that's funny because i read online that that was that's the one way to get rid of them is to bury them in a compost pile oh but you're no. saying they grow well, up right, it doesn't right, right up there maybe, yeah not in mine and i it just makes me so happy mm-hmm. you know i think it's just <laughs> adding nutrients to it and i just love it it's a great mm-hmm. plant yeah, and I mean it's beautiful too. Beautiful. I mean, it has the beautiful little bell, purple bell flowers. And actually, I've seen hummingbirds on ours, so I know the hummingbirds like them. Uh, so um, yeah, yeah. So, I don't want to have to plant every plant that I have. I would prefer right. that they plant themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I'm I'm being amazed. I bought this plant at Sawmill Herb Farm. So it's leaf. It's a purple leafy thing, and it's edible. It has a very very unique flavor so it's some people probably don't like it and you know probably half do and don't but it I had the one plant and it's not a perennial right so I thought oh that's it for that one but I let it go to seed and all of a sudden the other end of the of the yard where the compost pile is I got one plant last year or maybe two (laughs) And now this year, that whole area is little purple plants, probably 100 little plants. It's amazing. And I have, I have some perennial arugula mm-hmm. that we put in. And over this, you know, it's in a certain place, sort of. And uh, <laughs> this year, the plastic on one of our hoop houses, we are in a big wind area. And the, mm-hmm. it just blew completely over the greenhouse to the other side. So there's no plastic on the thing. Yeah. Well, I went in to clean, to get ready, get my be- my beds in this greenhouse ready this year. Mm-hmm. And it's covered with arugula. Mm-hmm. This gigantic <laughs> mat of arugula, arugula would have been, it's, it's amazing to me that it's in there. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> right. And it's like a big mat. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, we have chipmunks that farm for us. I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, they, they plant the cucumber seeds. And so all of a sudden I get this little pocket of cucumbers <laughs> plants coming up. And 
<laughs> yeah, they plant in our pots. You know, we had an empty oh, pot, yeah. and then all of a sudden we had um, four plants growing in there. I mean, it's so great. Oh, we had ground cherries growing in there last year. Really? Because <laughs> the chipmunks are something planted in for us. <laughs> uh, I, lo- I love the, yeah, the... Um, the surprise, right? The, the surprise. Oh my God, what is that? <laughs> yeah. How did that get there? I know. And New plants, plants seem to, they move around. Oh yeah. yeah. And they, Without legs, you know, they, they, they might want to be somewhere else that mm-hmm. you didn't put them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll do better. So Kathy, are you able to support uh, yourself with sales from your farm or do you need to have a uh, second, third, fourth job? Uh, no, we aren't. Uh, but we have never had making money in, in a listed goal. Mm-hmm. So we have succeeded. Right. You're very <laughs> successful. <laughs> and now we would like to be making some money, but we also are trying to be really mindful of how much work are we actually able to do and willing to do, what makes us happy, when are we not happy about having to do that work, mm-hmm. um, you know, and what suits us as the farm changes every year and the people change every year. So we have a very good understanding of what the farm will generate based on what we are interested in doing, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a tiny amount. But mm-hmm. that's fine because that wasn't the goal. Right. Yeah. I don't know how traditional farms, I don't know how they do it. I'm not willing to go into debt in a big way mm-hmm. to hire people or to buy a tractor. How do you fix a tractor? Yeah. And so we're just not doing any of that. And as long as that's not one of our goals, then we're not disappointed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> So what actions uh, do you take on the farm to be more resource responsible? Well, growing soil is the most important thing. And Mm -hmm. when we were taking this training 10 years ago, John Jevons said, made the statement, there are 40 years of topsoil remaining on the earth. Mm. And then what happens? Mm -hmm. You know, and that and his method directly addresses that. Um, I think it's very possible that 30 years from now, our farm will be the only farm with topsoil Mm -hmm. because it's all completely covered and we're not tilling it. Um, So we are growing soil. We have a solar array that offsets the electric a little bit, but the electric company charges us a monthly fee to have it because we're a commercial entity, so they're reserving service for us or something ridiculous like that. Mm -hmm. But... um, so that's fine. We have a well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we use, for the last 10 years, we have lived on the farm during the growing season. We, and we are not doing that now. That's a tiny house issue, zoning. But mm-hmm. um, we use much less water. When you don't have the water running through a tap mm-hmm. inside, you use much less water if you're filling containers and using those okay. in a different way. It's just a different mm-hmm. way of using the water mm-hmm. um we have an electric co- car farm vehicle um so really the only fossil fuel that we're using is for propane for cooking mm-hmm. um and the rest is electric so i don't know we're just outside all the time and we're not shopping mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, although we shopping. are consuming it, you know, we are constantly buying stuff for the farm. It's not that we've stopped mm-hmm. consuming. Mm-hmm. That is not the case. Right. Uh, well, I know there's a lot of uh, information in the news these days about, you know, the decimation of the bug population in general, uh, specifically pollinator, the pollinator population. So, <clears throat> Kathy, why should people care? Well, I found there's a wonderful book. The Xerces Society is... Um, 
a society everybody should l- go to Xerces dot org, um, and that's X X E R C E S, which is the only nonprofit focused on invertebrates, mm-hmm. and they have a wonderful pollinator conservation component to their website. And they have this book called Attracting Pollinators. It's one of their guides. Um, They describe the problem this way. They said, if you have an apple and you cut it horizontally across, what you'll see in the cross-section is a five-pointed star inside. If each of those little pockets has two seeds in it, the apple, the flower was completely pollinated. If you don't have two seeds in each of those pockets, what you're going to end up with is a maybe well, a partially pollinated fruit, which may be lopsided, not taste very good, going to be small. It's not going to be at its m- most beautiful apple-tude. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought some facts here, which is 75% of the flowering plants on Earth rely to some degree on pollinators. Um, and that's whether it's food plants, one out of every three mouthfuls that we eat, I'm sure you've heard this, um, is comes from something that was pollinated. Um, and if we don't have those pollinators, and the, the reports that pollinators are, you know, maybe decimated, maybe we've lost 70% of our pollinators, maybe more than that, um, then you're not going to have any of the foods or the crops. I mean, safflower oil, sunflower oil, all the fruits and berries that that we eat, um, as well as cotton um, and other fibers. And the population is declining uh, severely because of the loss and fragmentation of habitat. Um, development is, you know, clearing away. Lawns are like asphalt to a pollinator. Mm-hmm. Um, the pesticide poisoning, which is an enormous problem, and the spread of diseases and parasites, as we know about from honeybees. And honeybees are not those are imported bees. Those bees came over with the fruits and vegetables that we brought over with the white settlers brought over from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, native bees, which have, I mean, this is their land. This is <laughs> every place in the world has its own native pollinators who evolved there. And the plants, the native plants, you probably heard about native plants, evolved co-evolved with those insects. They belong together, they need each other, um, they're specific to each other, and if those have been destroyed because farms are using giant, you know, giant fields, monocrop fields, no edges, used to be farm edges, it used to be full of wildflowers. Um, Roadsides used to be full of wildflowers, and people's yards used to be full of wild native plants Mm -hmm. and the cleaner we got as we all thought oh we must be very neat and tidy um, that was all lost and so those pollinators have been lost and therefore the birds that eat those insects or the seeds from those plants are also declining Mm -hmm. Um, pollinators are 
a keystone species, which means there are many other species that depend upon them. And if they're gone, so are all those other species. Well, we need to take a station break, but please stay with us. Uh, when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Kathy Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent nonprofit community-run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, uh, where, you can also, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome. Co-op ownership is not required. Open daily 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi, I'd like to report a bear sighting, as in Smokey Bear. Continue. I was burning yard waste. He told me to remember that if it's too hot to touch, it's too hot to leave. You know, 9 out of 10 wildfires are caused by humans. That means 9 out of 10 wildfires can be prevented. I know that now. As usual, the talking bear gets all the credit. Always burn responsibly and contact your local fire department for open burning regulations. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Melinda in Lakeland, Florida asks, Hey, Mr. Green, I know that bottled water is bad and I rarely buy it. However, I enjoy seltzer water. Is there a way to make my own at home and save on bottles? You're right about bottled water. It's been so thoroughly and convincingly ripped for so many reasons by so many critics. Worldwide sales of bottled water exceeded $50 billion a year. That's $50 billion if invested in water systems which could provide safe drinking water for the billion of our thirsty fellow humans who don't have it and save the lives of 2.2 million who die from waterborne diseases every year. But if you got to have your fizz fix, soda makers which use refillable carbon dioxide cylinders and soda siphons which have single-use cartridges are easy to use and cost about 50 to $300. It's a simple appliance for your kitchen that can put fizz into water from the tap. You'll get delicious carbonated water and won't have to worry about disposable plastic bottles. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. 
That's WXOJ-FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. Hi, my name is Jessica. Sue Timberlake co-host and show producer Caroline Rudderman joined me in the studio. We've been talking with Kathy Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. Uh, so Kathy... Um, what is, um, the, or what is the, you know, I often talk to people about pollinator friendly plants and they quickly say, oh, I have lots of flowers in my, in my yard. And I, and I realize pretty quickly that they don't understand there's a difference between general flowers and pollinator friendly flowers. Um, so how, what do you say to those folks? Like, what's the difference between the two? Well, I'm not sure that you a regular person like myself could look at a plant and say that's a pollinator plant or that's not a pollinator plant. Pollinators Mm -hmm. require nectar and pollen. Um, I know that there there are many reasons why a plant wouldn't have nectar and pollen. One is that it's some kind of a hybrid variety Mm -hmm. that is sterile, um, that won't be offering any of those things. One is it might be a plant that such as you might find as a big at a big box store that begins its life with neonicotinoid pesticides which are in the system they're in the seed they're in the plant there's never going to be anything valuable about that plant and it's a dangerous plant Mm -hmm. some plants are too fancy they're doubles or triples and they look great but the insects can't get into them Um, so I think that's one of the tricky questions is, you know, what is a pollinator plant? And we have some ideas about that. Mm Um, so, so your best bet is to find a plant source that offers native plants, um, wildflowers, are in general those are the plants that have evolved with the pollinators and um, so you're and they're gorgeous and they want to grow there they don't you know they're just no trouble and so you're going to want to be putting some of those pollinator plants in so you do have to do some research Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to make sure that you're getting something that's of value and you already mentioned Xerces Society which on their website they have Incredible. Lots yeah. of lists of yeah. these state the by state, you know, different regions, different mm-hmm. kinds of growing areas. Uh, it's a really great place to start. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a friend who really wanted to support pollinators. Um, she saw my yard and was impressed. And uh, the w- one thing she says, though, is, you know, she's like, Jessica, I have to admit, I really like the big showy flowers and <laughs> these pollinator friendly ones. They're itty bitty. They, you know, I just, not, she's not impressed with them. All. And so now I'm picturing that a lot of these pollinator friendly flowers are really small. And well, a lot of them are, mm-hmm. um, but then, you know, on the not other so end, on the other end of it is something like a redbud tree, which is incredibly showy and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of, I mean, the, we grow, I don't know, maybe 80 different kinds of flowers on our farm um, that are good for pollinators, and they're amazing looking. And even the teeny ones, if you just sit down there for a while, <laughs> look beautiful. <laughs> and it doesn't mean you can't have the other ones. Mm-hmm, right. You can have the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also grow annuals. We're not, we're not purists. And zinnias, for example, um. which are very bright 
flat flowers, bright colors, Mexican sunflowers, another annual up here. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the butterflies love them. The bees love them. They're extremely showy. Um, they are annuals. They're not native plants, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they're nutritious and attractive, and they bring the pollinators into those other plants that we have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Kathy, what's the process that you go through to collect all these flower seeds? Well, so one of the fascinating things about these plants is how each one of them has a completely different seed delivery system. Um, we, my husband is a big believer in observing and trying things, and he spent many years trying to find some of the seeds. We There are some plants we can't find the seeds oh, wow. on them, um, but then there are other ones that are, you know, uncurl, like there's a plant called um, Chemichrysta, which is partridge pea. It's also known as the honey plant. It has a pod that, when it becomes dry enough, flings itself open, and the pod itself looks like a DNA helix amazing and very cool but the seeds go very far um, when they're flung in that way you know some are like a we're familiar with dandelions and how those seeds are dispersed Mm -hmm. Uh, milkweed one of the milkweeds is like that you know it has the silk and that gets picked up in the wind cottonwood right now is filling our air Um, those are seeds that have wonderful little flying mechanisms but they um you know, Baptisia is one of our early plants, and it and develops these big black seed pods that could be played as musical instruments. I mean, they're just kind of amazing and noisy in that way. So you just have to watch, and the trick is to catch them just before they fling their seeds away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so over a couple of years, you know, you'll learn when that is. And if they're pale, um, they're probably not ready if they're they have to be a little bit dried and they it has to be when the plant is ready to put those seeds in the soil that's when you want to collect them mm-hmm. so you have to let the plant teach you right actually you reminded me of one of the things I noticed having pollinator flowers in my yard is I always assumed that the pollinators would want the flowers at the peak but I often see the flowers in decline, and that's when the most pollinators kind of mm-hmm. attack them to get the nectar, which is interesting. I think it depends on what else is out there that day mm-hmm. um, and what the sun is shining on. I think the pollinators sometimes like the flowers that are, I don't know, warm. But there's a very interesting series on, I think it's Netflix, Dave Attenborough has a show about light and the... Um, ultraviolet spectrum that insects and birds can see that we can't even see and so they're looking for these colors you know so I don't know what what brings them and I also know that flowers respond by sending out signals when they're ready to have their nectar taken Mm -hmm. Um, you know and the insects are picking up on that so so you have to have a variety. You have to have different things growing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, Kathy, are you certified organic? No, nope. mm-hmm. we are not. We use we follow organic practices. We're too small. Three acre farm is too small to qualify for most every federal anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be at least five acres. Okay. So mm-hmm. we are not. Uh, and where? So where can people find your pollinator friendly uh, flower seeds to buy them? 
thatsaplentyfarm.com mm-hmm. um, is where we list them. We have we sell, I think, about 40 different kinds of seeds. We don't collect seeds from all of our plants, but um, the ones that we're able to get, those are the ones that we sell. Mm-hmm. So is, is there any chance that your seeds could be contaminated by things blowing in from other well there is a chance the first thing that we did when we put our pollinator habitat in was to put in 125 arborvitae trees which are now 10 years old they are enormous and they've all grown together and so we have a really excellent windbreak um, on the side of the farm that where the prevailing wind comes from Mm -hmm. um you know you'd like to think that farmers know that if you spray the time of day when you spray matters mm-hmm. um what you're spraying matters we have never had a successful conversation actually with any of the farmers <laughs> around us they don't want to talk about it but you know these farmers have been growing this way for decades and they that's how they make their living and they're very reluctant to change what they do mm-hmm. because somebody else wants them to. Um, but I think the farmers in Hadley are pretty smart and care a lot um, about what they're doing. It's, but, you know, who knows? We don't know mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned you sell pollinator-friendly plants. Um, how can how can folks uh, get hold of some of those? Well, they're going to have to email us. Um, our mm-hmm. website has our email address. That's a plenty dot. That's a plenty farm dot com has a way to reach us. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't live on the farm, so we are not there all the time. So you have to make an appointment to come and see. We're a very small nursery. There are many good nurseries in the area that are selling native plants and unsprayed plants. Um, Wing and a Prayer Nursery in Cummington is an amazing nursery with a very well-educated leader. Amy Pulley is a really knowledgeable purse grower. Wow. And Nasami Farms is, of course, famous mm-hmm. for the work that they do. Um, so there are, there are good supplies around, I would say, as opposed to the supermarkets and the, mm-hmm. you know, big box stores. I would avoid those. Right. <gasps> You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton. We're talking with Kathy Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. Um, So, Kathy, I don't want to finish. I mean, the time's going fast here. I don't want to finish the show without talking about this deck of cards I have (laughs) in front of me, which you and Michael, I'm assuming Michael helped. You both worked on this together? Yes, and our daughter is actually the designer. I collected most of the information. Michael's the proofreader, but... Um, and our daughter Jenny designed it, and we're really happy with it. It's a hundred. It's it's not a deck of playing cards. It doesn't mm-hmm. have suits, and we mm-hmm. couldn't figure out how to put all that together. So we skipped that part, mm-hmm. and ha- had it printed at a playing card company. So they're the size of poker cards, um, but there are 105 plants in here that are all, all, all verified beneficial to pollinators which pollinators they're beneficial for, when they bloom, what the special characteristics are of um, each plant, the growing zones, height, any anything special that you should know about the plant, uh, the soil conditions, the sun conditions, and it's all in one place. And this is information that you can get. Like there's a great plant database, uh, North Carolina, mm. 
um, state ex uh, extension has an amazing database, very comprehensive of all the databases that I looked at. And I looked at the Lady Bird Johnson wildflowers and the, you know, Nasami Farms, New England Wildflower Center, webs all of them. Um, but also, some of the best data I got was from Western Mass Pollinator Network, mm -hmm. which has now been absorbed into NOFA, which is the Northeast Organic Farming Association. NOFA Mass has hired a pollinator coordinator, Rosemary Malfi. You'll find them on the NOFA Mass website. And local people have provide a lot of bee people. There are a lot of bee people in this area. Um, UMass has a lot of excellent people who are very interested in pollinators. They're posting information about what, what plants attract these particular butterflies that that person's interested in. What plant, you know, how many bees will come to this flower? Um, and it's difficult to find this kind of information in one place. And so if you're a person who's starting who's just starting out, or you have a garden, but you think, mm, maybe I need to add some native plants to this garden, mm -hmm. it's hard to know where to get that information. And so, I don't know, I'm a tactile person, and I thought the idea of putting having cards and being, it's really just a handheld database. Mm -hmm. You can go and find your conditions, you know, sunny and medium wet although most of these wildflowers will grow anywhere um, you can pull out the cards that meet those criteria or if all you're interested in it is hummingbirds you can pull out the cards that attract hummingbirds and then you have maybe instead of 105 cards maybe you have 30 cards and then you can d discard the ones that you dislike and the then maybe you end up with 15 cards that are possible for your yard. And you can look at them and you can think about it and you can find out if you can even get them in your area. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this deck of cards is pretty neat. The only thing bad about them is they're really slippery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so slippery. when you first take them out of the box, they'll probably fly around a little uh -huh. bit. But um, I feel yeah. very optimistic that this deck is going to be helpful mm -hmm. to people who want to visualize how where do i even start mm -hmm. you know what would work for me um, so we have this new deck of cards it's called the pollinator garden planning deck uh, we do sell it on our website you'll also find it at broadside books mm -hmm. and uh it's i think i don't know i just i feel very hopeful that it's going to help people mm -hmm. know what to do next if they've just done no mo may mm -hmm. <laughs> but then yeah. They still have their lawn and not much else. Maybe they'll find some flowers in here. Like, part. This isn't just native plants. There's parsley and there's catnip and there's, you know, zinnias and they're just all kinds of, just a big range from trees all the way down to violets, different ground covers. What can you put in the woods? What can you put in the shade? So, mm -hmm. I think it'll be helpful. Yeah, I'm a visual person, so to me and. I mean, you've saved people hours and hours and hours of time, you know, sifting through all the websites and all the lists. And I mean, that can take a long time. So I love that it's visual. I can, I can, 
you know, arrange these flowering cards around and actually see, oh, this is what it's going to look like if I have this next to this and I can put sort of hair because I'm about aesthetics and not just right. I want it to look pretty as well, right? Right. right. Um, for our neighbors too. And <laughs> that might draw <laughs> them a in. Big like, oh, concern. look, you can, you know, yeah, yeah people think, oh, it's not going to look good. It's going to look messy. But, you know, I don't think that's true. I think it can be as beautiful as the ornamental. Great. Ornamental plants. Um, I feel that I, way I love too. This, I love this deck. Uh, I think it's going <laughs> to help a lot of people come up with their own design. Uh, so, yeah, um, Kathy, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. We have a couple, um, about a minute left. <laughs> if you want to throw any last resources out. Um, well, I did uh, just want to make sure that people, first of all, let me just say what the rules are for a successful pollinator habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, it should always be in bloom. The native insects will not be able to survive, so they won't be on your property. If there's not something, yours or neighbors or somewhere within their um, vicinity, mm-hmm. always in bloom. Trying to have three plants blooming early, three plants middle, three p- plants oh, the late. Summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the and um, starting from the very early spring when the bees are coming out of hibernation and getting ready to create, you know, to lay their eggs and create their nests and all mm-hmm. that. Plant islands, plant same, plant like plants right next to each other because then the insects won't waste energy going from here to four feet away to six feet away. If it's all right there in a clump, if you plant like flowers in a clump, mm-hmm. that will help it's pretty too. the pollinators. It is pretty. Um, you want to leave nesting areas. You want to leave some mess. You really do need to have some mess. You need to have some, you know, the piles of stuff that you've cleaned up or... Um, snags a brush they also need a little bit of bare soil because most of the native pollinators are ground dwellers and they don't live in colonies bumblebees and honeybees live in colonies but the other bees do not live in colonies they just live in little holes in the ground maybe in old mouse nests sometimes clumping grasses that are like humps that you never have to clean out are amazing resources and and um, environments underneath there. You want a little bit of water in a shallow dish. I have bird baths with my seashells and sea glass and marbles in them, so I like the way they look. And the insects have something they can stand on. Mm-hmm. And don't spray and don't interfere. Leave it, establish it, and just leave it. And I guess that's what I wanted to say. Um, mm-hmm. Go to the NOFA website, um, NOFA Mass. And look for the pollinator. Go to Xerxes and look for the pollinator links. Mm-hmm. And buy that Xerxes book, Attracting Pollinators. Um, mm-hmm. And the pollinator oh. deck. Yeah, you can buy that, <laughs> buy that deck. The cards. The pollinator garden Beautiful planning cards. deck, which you will find at our website. That's a plentyfarm.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's A lot of people have gotten them and said that they're really helpful mm-hmm. and it just makes us happy, so yeah. And Thank you. Oh, did you mention your daughter I created it? I did. I'm gonna. My, our break. daughter, who's the graphic designer on this deck, has mm-hmm. um, also just launched um, a game of her own, which is called EmergentGame.com. Mm-hmm. It's for if your creativity is stuck. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where tarot meets the I Ching. So that's mm-hmm. all I wanted to say. Thank you for letting me say that. Nice, nice. Yeah. No <laughs> well, we'd like to thank our guest, Kathy Katz, owner of That's a Plenty Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. 
You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. To listen to archive shows of earlier guests on Farm to Fork Radio Show, uh, you can visit our podcast site on Pinecast, P-I-N-E-C-A-S-T, at P-N-C dot S-T forward slash S forward slash Farm to Fork. Our theme song, Sometimes I Wonder Where My Food Comes From, was written by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers for this Farm to Fork radio program and performed by artists.